By 2022, there was a real problem in a forest of pine trees north of the small city of Camden, South Carolina. In actuality, the problem had been there for 240 years. But by 2022, it was time, and long since clear to several people, that something needed to be done. That forest of pine trees was the site of the Battle of Camden, one of the major battles of the American Revolutionary War. American history books don't focus on the Battle of Camden. Many don't mention it at all. But on a hot, humid morning in August 1780, roughly 4,000 American soldiers squared off against roughly 2,000 British soldiers. As many as 400 soldiers died in that forest. In the tangle of tall grass, pine trees, and swamps, some weren't buried at all. Most of the ones who were buried were quickly and hastily laid in shallow pits in the sandy soil. Very little time was spent caring for the fallen, as the two armies were still deep in a war that had no end in sight. And so, the dead laid in their shallow graves through the generations. New people and new industries arrived in Camden. For more than 200 years, the graves experienced steady destruction by natural erosion and human interference. In the fall of 2022, a small group of committed citizens made the decision to rescue the remains of the soldiers whose graves were in the most danger and to bury them properly with full military honors. In April 2023, hundreds of participants from the United States military, thousands of spectators, and representatives of five nations gathered in Camden for once-in-a-lifetime ceremonies to honor the fallen. But that was just the culmination of one part of a much larger story. The soldiers who fought in that forest came from Scotland, Ireland, England, France, and Germany. They came from North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and areas that did not yet have names or borders on maps. Some fought for king and country. Others fought to create a new nation. A long road led them to the pine trees north of Camden and then beyond to a peninsula in Virginia where it would all end. It began with protests. The protests sparked a rebellion. The rebellion became a revolution. The revolution led to war. For six years, from Canada to Florida, from the Appalachian Mountains to the Atlantic coast, a patchwork American force fought a British force. The outcome reshaped the world. For better or worse, nothing would be the same. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer. And this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is episode one, Rebellion. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation. You might be familiar with American revolutionary events like the Boston Tea Party, Bunker Hill, the ride of Paul Revere, and George Washington crossing the Delaware. But what about events in the South? The Battle of Camden was one of the darkest days for the American army, yet it was a crucial turning point for the American cause. Visit Camden, South Carolina, at the heart of the Southern Campaign. 
The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield and the Longleaf Pine Preserve, where thousands fought and hundreds fell. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. September 5th, 1774, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Fifty-six men crowded into Carpenter's Hall for a meeting that would become historic. They represented 12 of the British colonies in North America, and they assembled to talk about 10 years of escalating tension and violence between the colonies and the home country. The grievances stretch back to the end of the French and Indian War, as it was called in America. For the British, the fighting in America was just one theater of a larger conflict called the Seven Years' War. The French and the British were old combatants, and in the 1750s, their ongoing feud struck North America. Britain's 13 colonies extended from the beaches along the coast to the Appalachian Mountains. Beyond the mountains was the enormous territory of New France, some of which the Americans would eventually call the Louisiana Purchase. The French and the British were in constant conflict over the border between their territories. Local American militias united with British regular army troops to win the French and Indian War in America, but the effort was costly. A combined estimate of roughly 11,000 British troops and American militiamen were killed, wounded, or captured. And the British government spent a staggering amount of money to support the seven-year campaign. So, in an effort to repay the crippling debt that mounted during the war, Parliament levied new taxes against the colonies. The thought process was simple. England had sent money and manpower to help protect the American colonists. Citizens in England faced higher taxes to help repay the debt, and it was only fair that the colonists should share in some of the burden. For the next 10 years, from 1764 to 1774, the British Parliament passed a series of bills that drew increasing anger and frustration from the American colonists. Some of the bills imposed new taxes. Some modified old bills. Whatever the goal, the new laws were divisive. Riots broke out in protest of the new laws, and Parliament eventually repealed the law that started all the trouble, the Stamp Act. But Parliament quickly replaced the Stamp Act with four new laws, and the trouble continued. The need to raise money to pay down the war debt was an understandable justification for new taxes. But colonists increasingly felt like some of the taxes were designed simply as money-making efforts and not debt repayment efforts. And since the colonists had no representatives in Parliament, they had no way to debate the issues. The refrain, no taxation without representation, sprang up loudly and forcefully throughout the colonies, but the problems continued. The Massachusetts Assembly passed what was called the Massachusetts Circular Letter, which was written by one of the principal revolutionaries, Samuel Adams. The letter acknowledged Parliament's authority and continued to pledge allegiance to the British king, but it also said the taxes violated the rights of the colonists. Parliament responded by ordering the royal governor of Massachusetts to dissolve the Massachusetts Assembly, which he did in the summer of 1768. 
That happened one year after the New York Assembly had been dissolved by its royal governor. And it was no surprise that New York and Boston saw the first outbreaks of serious violence. Initially, mobs clashed in the streets, and Parliament dispatched four regiments of British soldiers to Massachusetts to quell the revolt. While the troops made the long voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, merchants in Boston pushed the tension one step further. They agreed to stop importing all goods from Britain until the new taxes were repealed, and the boycott quickly spread to other colonies. When the British troops arrived in October 1768, the tension between the rebellious colonists and the loyalist colonists ramped up another notch. 14 months later, on January 19, 1770, a brawl engulfed a small section of New York City known as Golden Hill. The area adopted the name of the hill that was believed to be the highest spot on the southern tip of Manhattan Island. Today, it's the area around the intersection of John Street and Water Street, right outside the financial district of Wall Street. A mob of colonials clashed with British soldiers in a hand-to-hand -hand engagement. The soldiers slashed with bayonets and swords, and the New Yorkers wielded knives and clubs and anything else they could find. Both sides sustained bloody injuries, and it was thought that one person died as a result. Two and a half weeks later, an account of what was called the Battle of Golden Hill circulated in local publications and further stoked the flames of animosity. For exactly one month, the clash at Golden Hill was probably the biggest news in the region. But then it was dwarfed and largely forgotten after British soldiers opened fire on protesters in Boston on March 5, 1770. Like so many events that became legendary in history, the event that was known as the Boston Massacre started small, and then one escalation led to another, and eventually it exploded into something that was far beyond the original inciting incident. That day, a wig maker's apprentice walked past a British sentry post outside the Customs House on King Street. There was one lone soldier manning the station, and the apprentice shouted at the soldier because an officer had not paid a bill to the apprentice's employer. The soldier and the apprentice got into a heated argument, and the soldier hit the apprentice with his musket. Word of the altercation raced through the streets of Boston. Irate citizens rushed to the scene and quickly outnumbered the isolated soldier. The soldier called for reinforcements. As the sun set and the temperature dropped, seven soldiers and their captain rushed to the aid of the stranded sentry. There were now nine soldiers total, but they faced a crowd that grew by the minute. Bells clanged throughout the city, and people hurried toward the site of the disturbance. The crowd grew to 300 people or more, and they shouted obscenities at the soldiers. They pelted the soldiers with rocks and snowballs, some of which allegedly contained cores of ice. The soldiers loaded their weapons in a display that was meant to subdue the escalating fervor of the mob. It had the opposite effect. The crowd raised the volume of its jeers and shouts, and then someone threw something like a stick that hit one of the soldiers and knocked him to the ground. The scene turned to chaos, with screaming and yelling and objects flying toward the soldiers. And at some point, one of the soldiers fired his musket. 
the ball struck a former slave named Crispus Attucks, and he fell dead to the ground. The other soldiers fired, and the fusillade slammed into the crowd. Five men fell dead, and six more staggered with injuries. The captain shouted for his men to cease fire, and in the silence that followed, the gravity of the moment sank in. For the first time, British soldiers had fired on colonial civilians. Long afterward, one of America's founding fathers, John Adams, reflected on the event and said, On that night, the foundation of American independence was laid. John Adams risked his life and legal practice to defend the soldiers in court. He was an ardent believer that everyone deserved a fair trial, and he successfully argued that six of the soldiers were not guilty of murder. Only two were convicted of crimes, and both of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Adams' effort may have helped show Parliament that the growing rebellion was more complex than it previously thought. But whatever the effect it would be lost in the rapid escalation of the next four years. Three years after the event known as the Boston Massacre, Parliament passed the Tea Act. Among other things, it granted the floundering East India Company the exclusive right to sell tea in the colonies. By forcing the colonists to buy tea, which they drank a ton of, from only the East India Company, the Tea Act eliminated competition in the marketplace. That allowed the East India Company to raise its prices and charge whatever it wanted, which leaders of the rebellion like Samuel Adams argued was even worse than a tax. On December 16, 1773, members of the revolutionary group, the Sons of Liberty, struck a blow against the Tea Act. Samuel Adams was a prominent member, and on that night, Several members disguised themselves as Native Americans and slipped on to three East India Company ships in Boston Harbor. They dumped 340 chests of tea into the water to protest the new law in an event that became known as the Boston Tea Party. Samuel Adams' cousin John, future president of the United States, loved the act of defiance. The day after the event, he wrote in his diary, This is the most magnificent movement of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. Members of Parliament had a slightly different view. Three months later, they retaliated. Whereas dangerous commotions and insurrections have been fermented and raised in the town of Boston to the subversion of His Majesty's government and to the utter destruction of the public peace and good order of the town in which certain valuable cargoes of teas, being the property of the East India Company and on board certain vessels lying within the bay or harbour of Boston, were seized and destroyed. Parliament passed laws that closed the Port of Boston, which had a devastating effect on the economy, and rescinded the Royal Charter of the Massachusetts Colony. All local officials were replaced by British officials who were loyal to the Crown. Then, Parliament passed a law that allowed those officials to go back to England for trial if they were accused of crimes. 
colonists howled about the injustice, though overall they had won many of their battles about the new laws. Most of the laws that were hated and caused protests were repealed by Parliament, but it felt like they were just replaced by new ones and the cycle never stopped. So on September 5, 1774, representatives of 12 of the 13 colonies that would eventually rebel against England converged on Philadelphia to debate a response. Of the many notables at the First Continental Congress, there were John and Samuel Adams, John Jay, future New York governor and the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, gifted speaker Patrick Henry, and military veteran George Washington. Some of the 56 delegates argued for immediate independence from England. Others urged a more cautious approach, and in the end, they compromised. The colonies would not declare their independence just yet. Instead, they would issue a warning. Unless Parliament rescinded the four acts that were the most despised by the colonists, the United Colonies would boycott British goods beginning December 1, 1774. In fairness to Parliament, the First Continental Congress didn't reach its decision until the end of October 1774. With the time it took for the written warning to cross the Atlantic Ocean, it was physically impossible for Parliament to even receive the ultimatum by December 1st, let alone debate it and send a response. When Parliament did receive it, and the Secretary of State for America sent a response a couple months later, the response was an order for General Thomas Gage to take action. But it was a classic political response. It didn't specify what action Gage should take, just that he should do something, whatever he saw fit. That way, if it went wrong, the Secretary of State could blame it all on Gage. And it was safe to say that it did go wrong. Gage was the royal governor of Massachusetts and the commander of all the troops in the region. He decided to send a small detachment of soldiers to the town of Concord, where the colonists were rumored to have a stockpile of guns and ammunition. Four days later, Gage ordered a secret nighttime march that was not as secret as he believed. If the point of no return had not already been passed, it was passed on the night of April 18, 1775. Colonial spies learned British troops were on the move. A messenger named William Dawes slipped through the British picket lines on the narrow land bridge that connected Boston to the mainland, known as Boston Neck, and galloped through the countryside to Concord. On the way, he shouted the alarm and rallied local militias. At the same time, a Boston silversmith named Paul Revere, whose engraving of the scene of the Boston massacre became a powerful propaganda tool for the Patriot cause, crossed the Charles River in a boat and then made his own ride through the countryside to rally the troops. Meanwhile, the sexton at Boston's historic Old North Church lit a signal that had been arranged by Revere. If the British were going to march by land, the sexton would hang one lantern in the church steeple. If the soldiers were going to cross the Charles River by boat and then march inland, he would hang two lanterns. That night, the sexton hung two lanterns. British troops were moving by sea. Paul Revere and William Dawes rode through the night, alerting homesteads and villages of the coming troops. 
Companies of colonial militiamen grabbed their guns and rushed to their town squares or village greens. These early colonial fighters were nicknamed the Minutemen for their willingness to be ready to move with little notice, at a minute's warning, as they said. And they proved it now. At about 5 a.m., the British soldiers approached Lexington wearing their iconic red coats. The small town was on the road to Concord, and on a common area called Lexington Green stood 70 to 80 colonial militiamen and their captain, John Parker. The militiamen blocked the road, but they were badly outnumbered. When the first British soldiers rushed forward, Parker ordered the colonial militiamen to disperse. And in those first tense moments, someone fired a shot. To this day, no one knows if it was fired by a militiaman or a British soldier, but the British responded with a volley of musket fire that tore into the meager American force. Seven militiamen died on Lexington Green, and another died later of his wounds. The colonials scattered, but that was just the beginning of a very long day for the British. Between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., the soldiers reached Concord. British commanders ordered roughly 220 men to secure the bridge that led to the farm that supposedly held the supplies of guns and powder. As the soldiers reached the bridge, a growing force of nearly 400 militiamen marched over a hill in front of the soldiers. The British retreated back across the bridge and then took aim at the oncoming militia. The soldiers fired a volley and killed two militiamen. The militiamen responded, killing three soldiers and wounding nine more. The British detachment at the bridge retreated to Concord to rejoin the larger force. The two British commanders ordered a withdrawal to Boston, without ever reaching the farm that was rumored to hold the stockpile of colonial weapons. But the fighting that day wasn't done, not by a long shot. It was just getting started. The British soldiers turned around and began to march back down the road that they had taken from Boston. The road became known as Battle Road because the 12-mile journey was one long, non-stop experience in guerrilla warfare. The militiamen, who knew the woods around the road by heart, launched attacks from every direction. Individual snipers stationed themselves behind rocks and trees and picked off soldiers one by one. Small groups of militiamen attacked in lightning raids and then melted back into the landscape. The colonials harassed the soldiers until British reinforcements arrived. The soldiers eventually reached the safety of their boats on the Charles River and crossed back into Boston. And now, Thomas Gage, royal governor and British military commander, had to reckon with a new reality. An estimated 20,000 militiamen answered the call to arms after the rides of Paul Revere and William Dawes and the fighting at Lexington and Concord. They streamed in from farms, hamlets, villages, and towns all over New England, and they surrounded the city of Boston. General Gage and his roughly 4,000 soldiers were outnumbered five to one, and they were trapped. The opening salvo by the American colonists that day in Concord would eventually be known as the shot heard round the world. The phrase was crafted by American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson, 62 years after the fight at North Bridge in Concord. 
Emerson helped dedicate a battlefield monument near the small wooden bridge over the Concord River. That day, April 19, 1775, was a wake-up call for both sides. The colonial militiamen were trained as well as could be expected for part-time soldiers. They were natural fighters who had a zeal for the cause. During the running fights of April 19th, they were in their element, a series of sporadic backwoods attacks. The militiamen performed well, and they inflicted serious casualties upon the British, but they didn't have to face a full-scale, organized assault by professional soldiers. Now, they were rushing toward a scenario for which they were not prepared. And for the British, the fact that a group of citizens had done so much damage to the best army in the world was shocking. From that day forward, the situation in Boston escalated quickly. Exactly three weeks after Lexington and Concord, the Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. That same day, May 10, 1775, an American force of frontier fighters who called themselves the Green Mountain Boys captured Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. They were mostly from Vermont, and they were led by their charismatic captain, Ethan Allen. But they weren't alone in their expedition. A man who became an early American military hero, Benedict Arnold, had had the same idea as Ethan Allen and had set off on his own to rally men to seize the fort. He connected with the Green Mountain Boys, and together they took the fort that had begun as a key French outpost during the French and Indian War. It was eventually captured by the British, but in the 12 years since the end of the war and the rise of the American Rebellion, the fort had fallen into disrepair and was manned by just a few lonely British soldiers. The colonists easily captured the installation. But afterward, Ethan Allen claimed all the glory for himself and his men and failed to acknowledge Benedict Arnold's crucial role in the mission. That was just the first of many slights against Arnold, and he cataloged and internalized each one. In Congress, there were three notable new faces, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Hancock. Franklin had lived in England for nearly 20 years as a kind of emissary for the colonies, but he returned home to Philadelphia as the tension grew into a crisis. Jefferson was a young, sophisticated, wealthy plantation owner from Virginia. And Hancock was a wealthy and fiery patriot from Boston who quickly became president of the Second Continental Congress. The group had agreed to convene before the fighting at Lexington and Concord, but their discussions were now more urgent than ever. Blood had been spilled on both sides, and colonial militiamen had surrounded the city of Boston and essentially begun a spontaneous siege. Congress needed someone to hurry to Boston and take control of the impromptu army, and the delegates turned to Virginia Representative George Washington. Washington had been a young lieutenant colonel 20 years earlier during the French and Indian War, and he was currently a 43-year-old plantation owner who was active in local politics. Now, he was being asked to transform a collection of farmers and frontiersmen into an army because it seemed all but inevitable that the conflict between the colonies and England would grow into a full-scale war. Three months earlier, just three weeks before Lexington and Concord, Washington and the Virginia House of Burgesses had listened to an impassioned speech by Washington's fellow delegate, Patrick Henry. 
Henry not only believed war was inevitable, he believed it needed to happen. The goal could be nothing less than independence, and the final line of his speech has been immortalized in American history. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, we must fight. They tell us that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? We are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, let it come. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. On June 15th, 1775, George Washington was appointed commander of the force that would be called the Continental Army. Two days later, the militiamen outside Boston, some of whom would form the first regiments of that army, received their first taste of battle. They had been stationed outside Boston for nearly two months while they waited for the next move by the British. Inside Boston, British Commander-in-Chief Thomas Gage had been waiting for orders and reinforcements from England. Fresh troops arrived in early June, and now Gage felt he could make a push against the motley crew of American fighters who were usually referred to as a mob or a rabble. Despite the overwhelming size of the colonial rabble, everyone in the British force felt the colonials could not and would not stand up against an organized assault by the best soldiers in the world. Early estimates said there could be as many as 20,000 militiamen versus 4,000 British soldiers before the British reinforcements arrived. The reinforcements totaled 2,000 soldiers, so the British were still badly outnumbered. And Boston was one of the worst places on earth for an army that was supposed to rule the surrounding region. In the 1770s, Boston almost looked like an island. Probably 80 to 90% of it was surrounded by water. It was connected to the mainland by just a narrow strip of land that was called Boston Neck. Much of the area around Boston that used to be water has been filled in so that it looks nothing like it did in the 1770s. But at the time, at three points of the compass, ridges of empty high ground looked down on the city. To the north in Charlestown, there were a pair of hills called Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. To the south, there was a line of hills called Dorchester Heights. And to the west, right at the base of Boston Neck, there was Roxbury Hill. The militiamen had quickly occupied Roxbury Hill, but they left the hills to the north and south undefended. 
General Gage needed to take those hills so that he wouldn't be completely isolated and genuinely trapped. But before he could make his move, the colonists learned about his plans. It was hard to keep secrets in the city that was the heart of the rebellion. Artemis Ward, who was the head of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, was the commander of the collection of American militia units. On June 15th, while George Washington was being named commander of the Continental Army in Philadelphia, Ward ordered militiamen to take the heights in Charlestown. General Israel Putnam and Colonel William Prescott led about a thousand men to the first of the two hills, Bunker Hill, and quickly occupied the ground. Then they decided to move to Breed's Hill, which was 60 feet closer to the Charles River. If the British wanted to take those hills, they would cross the river and land below Breed's Hill, and they would be forced to face colonial guns. The militiamen arrived at Breed's Hill at midnight and struggled all night to build earthwork fortifications. With the colonists now controlling two of the three critical positions around Boston, the British knew something had to be done. According to some, the first step of General Gage's original plan was to occupy Dorchester Heights south of Boston. But now that the Americans were close enough to be a threat from the north, Gage ordered an attack on the heights at Charlestown. The British pounded the heights with cannon from Boston and three warships that were anchored in Boston Harbor. Then General William Howe landed on the banks of Charlestown with a little more than 2,000 soldiers. Howe split his men into two wings. One wing marched straight at the colonial defensive position with the hope of acting as a distraction. The other moved around the right flank and tried to attack through a field that appeared unguarded. The colonial militiamen watched one of the wings advance directly toward them, and they waited for the right moment to strike. If the legend is to be believed, Colonel Prescott told the militiamen to be cautious with their powder and shot. He said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. On Breed's Hill, British soldiers climbed toward the colonial fortification. The colonists let them draw close and then opened fire. The volley sliced through the soldiers like a sickle through wheat. The front ranks were cut down and their bodies littered the hillside. On the right, the flanking maneuver became a disaster. The tall grass in the field hid a myriad of obstacles that slowed progress. And then the British discovered that colonial reinforcements had arrived in the nick of time to guard the approach. 800 New Hampshire colonials opened fire on the British soldiers and turned the field into a slaughter pen. The first attack had been devastating for the British, and General Howe pulled his men back to regroup. He ordered one final assault, this time on the left side of the colonial fortification. The soldiers mounted a fierce attack in the face of another withering volley from the colonials, and it worked. The militiamen ran out of ammunition, and the battle became a brutal hand-to-hand fight. The British drove the colonials off of Breed's Hill, but the cost of the engagement was stunning to Commander-in-Chief Thomas Gage and his subordinates. A British officer wrote later, Our three generals expected rather to punish a mob than fight with troops that would look them in the face. The British captured the ground, but they suffered nearly 300 killed and more than 700 wounded. 
nearly three times the number of colonial casualties. Notable among the dead of the first real engagement between colonial forces and British forces were Dr. Joseph Warren on the colonial side and Major John Pitt Caron on the British side. Warren was the man who had organized the rides of William Dawes and Paul Revere, and Pitt Caron was one of the two British commanders in the fights at Lexington and Concord. The battle around Charlestown would be called the Battle of Bunker Hill, even though it was fought on Breed's Hill. The original goal of the American movement was to occupy Bunker Hill, and the name just stuck. For the British, the effort was a Pyrrhic victory. They won the battle, but it was so much worse than they expected that they abandoned their plans to try to take Dorchester Heights and eventually gave up the heights at Charlestown that so many had died to capture. And while the British retreated back into Boston, the new colonial commander-in-chief arrived to take control of the militia units. General George Washington set up headquarters at Cambridge, Massachusetts, across the harbor from Boston. Washington immediately went to work trying to transform the units of volunteers into a cohesive army, but he could never have imagined how difficult it would be. His men had virtually no formal military training, and many had very little interest in receiving any. Congress could provide only a scant sum of money to pay the soldiers of the new Continental Army, and it could provide very few supplies. So, a stalemate quickly settled in around Boston. With no supplies and raw recruits, Washington couldn't attack a fortified enemy in an urban setting. And General William Howe, who had eventually replaced Thomas Gage as the overall British commander, had no desire to try to break through the colonial positions and repeat the experience of Breed's Hill. The siege of Boston had begun, and that summer, the summer of 1775, the Second Continental Congress sent one final plea to King George III to try to avoid a war, even though it had essentially started already. The document was called the Olive Branch Petition, and its reception by the king was about as hopeless as many assumed it would be. King George didn't even read the petition. He had already learned about the Battle of Bunker Hill and had issued an official proclamation about his subjects in America. Whereas many of our subjects in North America, misled by dangerous and ill-designing men and forgetting the allegiance which they owe to the power that has protected and sustained them, after various disorderly acts committed in disturbance of the public peace to the obstruction of lawful commerce and to the oppression of our loyal subjects have, at length, proceeded to an open and avowed rebellion. We have thought fit to issue this, our royal proclamation, hereby declaring that all our officers, civil and military, are obliged to exert their utmost endeavors to suppress such rebellion and to bring the traitors to justice. Next time on Mission History, the siege of Boston ends, fighting begins in the South, and the American colonies make an historic decision. The rebellion becomes a war of independence. Two armies, featuring new regiments from Maryland and Scotland, prepare to clash for the first time, and the battleground is New York, 
That's next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Jeremy Schwartz performing Patrick Henry's speech, Peter Coates performing quotes from Parliament and King George III, and James Scott as John Adams. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Kerry Briggs for the historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pycooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davy, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>